Good morning. There we are. My name is Brian Petrie, and one of my roles here at Bergen Park Church is as the director of youth ministry. Um, and it's my honor and privilege to be up here in front of you preaching. Um, so I wanted to start talking about my son. He's kind of the mascot around here and runs around thinking he owns the place. He's just about a year and a half old, and he's just learned this new awesome thing. When you ask, where did the truck go, or where did your puppy go, or where's daddy, and he doesn't know, he goes like this. Just like that. We found that online. He goes, I don't know. It's the cutest thing, and I have no idea where he learned it. But as he's growing up, I can't help but to think about what's coming up soon, the inevitable potty training. And as I think about potty training, I think about a children's book that you might know. It's called Everybody Poops, right? In this book, it talks about all these different animals and how they all poop because they all eat, and they're all different, and so they all deal with their poop in different ways. It's kind of funny. It tries to normalize pooping, but one day a kid's going to grow up, and talking about poop's going to be something he doesn't want to do anymore. And at some point, he's going to be dating this girl, and he's going to realize, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> but at any point in that relationship, someday, hopefully after marriage, he'll realize this beautiful woman he fell in love with, she also poops. Now, one of the things about this book is that it has a theological truth in it, right? Maybe you don't follow. Just like everyone poops, so too does everyone sin. The book ends, all living things eat, so everyone poops. And my conclusion today is that everyone eats, and so therefore everyone sins. Right, take that home with you. So this summer, we've been dealing with the book of Psalms, and one of the main writers in the book of Psalms is King David, as Stephen already mentioned, a man after God's own heart. Now, David sinned in some pretty radical and grotesque ways, and today we're going to be looking at a story about that. Now, King David was appointed by God to be king over Israel. And he not only was king, but he was supposed to be the representative of God. Second Samuel chapter 11 tells this story. Now, it was spring, and when all of the kings and all the people are supposed to go to battle, David decides he's going to stay home. He's going to send a commander, Joab, in his place. Now, one afternoon while David's at home, while everyone else is at war, he's relaxing, maybe enjoying the breeze and the, and the sunset. And he's sitting on the roof of his palace. And on his palace, he, he's walking around and he notices this woman sitting there bathing. And not only does, she notice that she, does he notice that she's bathing, he notices, wow, look at her. And so being king, he's find, he gets to find out who is this woman. And so he sends some people and they come back and they say, that's Bathsheba, the son of Uriah, or the, the son of, yeah, you know. <laughs> the son of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so he becomes satisfied with information because he knows that Uriah the Hittite, his, her husband, is off at battle. And so he sends for her. And she comes because she finds the king wants your presence. And so she comes and he immediately has sex with her. Not only that, he gets her pregnant. 
And so she goes away, and, he, and eventually he gets the news saying that, that uh, Bathsheba is actually pregnant. And so David has to realize, oh no, what have I done? Her husband's at war, and now she's pregnant. And so he comes up with a solution. He goes ahead, and he, he sends a letter to, to the battlefield. He sends for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to come and meet with David. And so David, or Uriah comes, and the goal that David has is for Uriah to be able to go home, have some food, drink some wine, and be with his wife so that everyone will think that Uriah is actually the father. Now, the thing about Uriah is that he is a very, very good soldier, and he is honorable. He refuses to go home, and when David asks, why didn't you go home, he responds in this way. Says the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, the commander, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat, drink, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, Uriah shows the character that David as king ought to have had. And David kind of dismisses his answer and says, oh, I'll just try it again but this time I'm gonna get him drunk first. And so he has Uriah come and they drink and they have a nice little celebration and again, Uriah refuses. At this point, David begins to panic. What am I going to do? And so he sends Uriah back to battle with a letter to the commander Joab. And in the letter, it says that Uriah is to be in the front lines of battle, in the worst battle there is. And right at the, the climax of the battle, everyone else is supposed to back up. And the idea is that Uriah would die. Now, Joab, being a good commander, he does this. And when King David finds out that in battle Uriah dies, he's kind of content. He said, good, now, now I can deal with this. So Bathsheba finds out later on that Uriah has died, and she begins to mourn. David allows this, and when she's done mourning, David goes ahead and sends for Bathsheba once more. But this time she comes and she becomes his wife. And then she bears, a, bears the son. And the text just provides one piece of commentary on this whole narrative. It says, the king David has done, the thing that David has done displeased the Lord. Now, the prophet Nathan, who David knew very well, was sent by God to speak truth into David's life. And so Nathan comes, and he tells a story to David. In this story, there's this rich man, and then there's a poor man. And we're not going to go into details, because we're talking about Psalms and not Samuel. But as its story continues, the rich man ends up stealing from the poor man, and David becomes very, very angry at this rich man. The rich man takes from the poor man for his own, and David says, that man ought to die. How dare he do such a thing? Nathan speaks up and says, you are that man. You are the man that has stolen. You are the man that God has blessed. You're the one that has the kingdom. You're the one that has a wife. You're the one that has everything, and you're taken from the poor. In this moment, David realizes exactly what he has done, and he confesses to Nathan. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And so Nathan responds, giving forgiveness from God. 
but he warns him that as a result of this sin, this newborn son will soon die as well. So this morning we're, we're focusing on Psalm 51, and tradition says that this psalm was written right when David has been confronted by Nathan. In the vivid story, David screws up on all sorts of levels. It's not just one thing. He should have gone to battle, but he chose to stay home. He should have not summoned Bathsheba at all, much less sleep with her. He should not have tried to cover up his son by having Uriah come back from battle. And then other people were killed in addition to Uriah. Not only did he sentence Uriah to death, all these people died. He rates Bathsheba, but she becomes pregnant. The baby will die too. He's dug in a hole for him. And then David replies saying, when when confronted by Nathan, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Throughout this story and trying to cover up his sin, he just digs himself deeper and deeper. And I think in that way, we can relate to him in a lot of ways. Our psalm today is Psalm 51. You can go ahead and open up to it in your Bibles. As I said, this tradition says that this psalm was written soon after David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Throughout the psalm, they'll see that David deals with his sin in a pretty radical way. And I think we can learn a lot from it. As the children book teaches that everybody poops, we, we also see that everyone sins. And I guarantee that the person sitting next to you sins, and that you're struggling with sin, and I struggle with sin. What we see in the psalm is that David struggles with his sin, but he deals with it in a different way because he sees something in God that I think we struggle to see sometimes. Turn with me to Psalm 51, if you will. I'm going to start in verse 1. The psalm begins with David crying out for mercy. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. David's crying out for mercy. Now, what is mercy? It's released from the power and the presence of sin. Notice how David asks for mercy based on God's character. There's two different traits that he says. Forgive me for this sin. For, give me mercy based on your character. There's a few words in seminary that you have to learn in order to justify all the tuition. And one of those words is used right here. And so I, I have to talk about it. And so the word is the one for steadfast love. Now, this word for steadfast love is this super, super heavy covenantal love. It's kind of the way you can think about it is the best you can imagine any marriage. If you can imagine the perfect marriage, the perfect couple that loves each other no matter the best they can. And as they grow old together, love just deepens. That kind of love is what is being used here. It's a non-unconditional, godly love. Sometimes, as Christians, we like to focus on the Greek agape as God's love. This, this is the one you should really be caring about. Now, it's in this covenantal love that David says, hey, you love me like in this way. Give me mercy. And there's another word that's being used. It's... Um, it says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Other translations say tender mercies or compassion. This word is really a 
motherly love. The, the Apostle Paul uses the same language in 1 Thessalonians when he's writing about his new converts. And he says, but we were gentle among you, just as nursing mothers cherish their own children. Here David is calling on God, both because of his covenantal love, but also because of the motherly love that he has and saying, God, blot out my sin. This word blotting out, we now use Excel and spreadsheets and stuff to track debt. But at this time, they were writing their debts in a, in a log. And the word here is erasing the debt from the log, blotting it out. Isaiah 43 records a promise from God that he will do that same thing. It says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will not remember your sin. And so David continues and prays for this deliverance, this blotting of sin, exactly what his heart is really needing in this moment. Now, something in this reminds me from when I was younger. I grew up in Wisconsin, and in Wisconsin, you can go out in the grass, and the field is soft. You can't do that here. There's rocks everywhere. I don't know what we're going to do. But in school, we'd play football and sometimes get kind of messy, and people would get grass stains, maybe on their sweatshirt or their jeans. And I remember my friends being very upset and scared when they get a grass stain, saying, my mom is going to kill me. I never understood this, because when I got grass stains a week later after the laundry's done, the stain's gone. I, I don't think about it. My mom did some magic in that way. But I, for some of these kids, they think this is the end of the world. They have this stain on them that shows that they were playing at recess. And, and, and sometimes I think when we sin, we, we kind of react like these kids on the playground saying, I am stained. I am marked. And so here David's praying, God, wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from that stain. And sometimes I think when we go to the church too long or we grow up as a kid in the church, we tend to forget the character of God that is at the heart of the gospel. God loves us through that sin and he cleanses us from that, those stains. It's nothing that he can't take care of. And this is what David's asking that God would do for him. Now there's a few words being used here, being interchanged to communicate the same idea. Transgression, sin, inequity. Another translation says rebellion. All these indicate some sense of moral failure. Now, if the word sin has a traditional illustration of what it means, to miss the mark. The idea is of an archer shooting at a target, and he pulls back his bow, and he shoots at the target, and either he will hit the target or he'll miss his mark. It's no, there's no gray area. Either he did it or he didn't. And that is the word that's being used here for sin. Now, this summer, I've had the privilege to work at St. Joe's Hospital as a chaplain as part of my um, schooling. And I've had an incredible number of patients in their beds look at me with tears saying, is this what I've done? Is this a sin? Did I cause this? And with my youth group, the same question comes up all the time. Is that a sin? We, t we tend to wonder, maybe out of fear, maybe out of obedience, but we wonder, is this something that I've done? Did I cause something to happen? Now, the definition of sin that I like better, perhaps, is from the Apostle Paul. And he says, the sin is to worship the created rather than the creator. 
You know, it doesn't have to be like a little statue or anything. It can be money. It can be success. It could be a career. It could be this perfect house with a perfect family that makes you feel like you've done everything right. It could be a car. It could be anything. But to worship the created rather than the creator is sin. Thus Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later Jesus wrote saying, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. With this standard of perfection, how can anyone stand on their own in judgment? We have to join David in crying out to God, God, forgive me of this sin, blot out my transgressions. Now let's continue in the text. I'm going to pick up at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In this, in this part of the prayer, I mean, that's what this really is. It's a prayer from David to God. David's crying out to God. And he takes ownership for his sin. Now, I think there's something very valuable when someone can cry out saying, I did this sin. It begins healing. Likewise, to say, I am sick or I did this, it's the first step to heal. Whether it's cancer or an addiction or some other sort of temptation, to say, I did this sin, that's the first step. Now, sometimes we need someone like Nathan to come to us and, and remind us exactly where we are. Nathan brought to David our truth. Now, David is completely morally sick and corrupt at this point, and Nathan says, look what you've done. And David replies, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Now, there's an important observation here. David is overwhelmed with guilt but he does not go to shame. There's a stern difference between guilt and shame. Can, do, you, do you recognize this? David felt guilt. He, he saw what he did, and he said, I screwed up. I should not have done this. I have sinned against God. I need healing. I tend to go a different way. I go to shame. And this illustration or this story Shame for David to be saying, I screwed up, therefore I'm a terrible person. I'm a bad king. I shouldn't be in power. I'm unrespectable, unforgivable, untouchable, dirty. This is where I go. And if it happens to be a communion Sunday, I will let the plate pass because how dare I approach God. If it's time to worship, I can't mouth the words. I'll watch other people, but how dare I go to God when I'm such a dirty person. Who do I think I am? I'm worthless, a screw-up. And like David, I run amid sin, but instead of running to God, I run away, and I try to isolate myself. And when we're in a place of shame, we get to a spot where there is depression, anxiety, anger, all sorts of other things that show up. And is that not what we, what we deal with here in everyday life? David was convicted, but he was not condemned. In youth group right now, we're studying the Holy Spirit and all the different ways that the Holy Spirit interacts in our life. And one of those functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict. If you're sitting here right now in a place of shame, say it, name it. Say, shame, I don't need you. 
what I've done is, or what happened to me, does not define who I am. There's an author, Brene Brown, and she speaks and teaches on dealing with shame in your life. And in the TED Talk, she has all these people listening to her, and she teaches them to say, shame, shame, go away. It sounds silly, but it really works. Now, one of my jobs around here is to manage the facilities, and I often look around, and I see, look at all those weeds. Look at that hole in the wall. Look at all these things that need to be done. And I go to shame. And so I have to, because I feel like I failed in my job. I should have done that, and I didn't, so therefore I'm a terrible person. And so what I have to do is, in conversations about the facility, I literally have to say, I'm going to shame right now. And the second you do that, it loses power. And I can move on with my life and actually take care of the problem rather than focusing on myself. Sometimes we're so lost in shame, however, that we need help to, to deal with it. So that might be your growth group. That might be uh, someone that you trust. That, or maybe it's a counselor. If you need help finding a person like that, talk to me. <laughs> Living in shame is not how we were created to be. Now let's go back to the text at verse 3 again. It says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and I have done evil in your sight. Really, David? No, he didn't. He screwed up on all sorts of levels with all sorts of people. He had people killed. There's families that don't have husbands anymore. Kids don't have fathers. Uriah's life will never be the same. But David understands where he stands before God. God is God and he is not. And all sin on some level is sin against God. Because after all, it's God who puts order in life. And when we break that order, it's sin against him. One of my favorite narratives in Genesis is the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph, when he was in Egypt, he was number two in command. And he was under Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife tempted him. And in response, Joseph says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph realized this. Adultery is not just a marriage vow or breaking a marriage vow, but sinning against God. Verse 4 concludes that God will act justly and purely and that he will receive his justice. How often do we confess our sin to God in a way that we fall on our knees and say, against you and you alone have I sinned? At verse 5, David picks up, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in inequity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This verse has been used in all sorts of horrendous ways throughout church history. Another translation says it this way, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. What, is this, what does this mean? Is it, is it God? Oh, hang on. This has been used as a proof text, and we don't have really time to go into it here. So maybe go to your growth groups. Talk about what, what does this mean that we're sinful at birth? Does it mean that there's something sinful about sex itself? Does it mean that David is born out of wedlock somehow? Does it mean 
that he has just been sinful from the day he's been born. What, what does that mean? How do you deal with that? In verse 6, it says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It is God that is this truth. And in the inward being, it's kind of like the womb, the inner parts, the guts. This is what God wants for his truth, for him to be completely indwelled in us. It's not just about what we do, not just about what we say, but it's the heart that matters. The prophet Jeremiah records God teaching on this, and he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write them on their heart. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now we know that with Jesus, that is actually Jesus that is the wisdom. There's something about being a Christ follower that's more than just getting out of hell. In verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my inequities. The language here, it's temple language. The word purge, that's literally unsin me. Purify me, take it away. The word about purging, that's the same word in lepers' houses when they needed to be cleansed. It's this hyssop. It's a plant that they use to sprinkle during the rite of purification. It's the same plant that at Passover in Egypt, the Hebrews would use to brush the blood of the lamb onto the doorpost so that the Holy Spirit would pass over the house. David's asking for God to be a priest, to, to remove the sin, to, to purify. In Isaiah, it talks about how, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's what David's asking for. This isn't a new idea to be cleansed as white as snow. The, the verbs that David's using up to this point are crying out for forgiveness. Blot out, wash, purify, hide your face. David's asking for release. And Jesus tells us to keep asking, keep knocking, keep coming to him. David sees something in God that is different than what I sometimes see in him, and I think some of you sometimes see in him. Instead of running to God in sin, we often run away. Verse 10 here is a changing point for the psalm. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's not just asking for cleansing, but he's asking for a new creation, a new heart. This word being used here for create, only God does that. Only in the Hebrew, in that word, does it use God as the subject. As I've been reflecting on this psalm for the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to a lot of people, and they, they tell me how often do we try to fix things on our own, whether it's out of guilt or shame or perhaps obedience. We try to deal with our sin and try to create ourselves a clean heart. 
talk to anyone who's been dealing with sin, how does that work? We need God to create that for us. The language that's being used here is to sit before the face of God in his presence. And I think that's the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower, to be able to go to a place and sit before God's presence. Verse 11 reads a fear of David's. In his sin, he's crying out, saying, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's what this is all about. David wants to worship in God's presence. The Holy Spirit is God, and in a sense, it's the Holy Spirit that both provides conviction and comfort. First Samuel talks about how when David was first anointed as king, it says that uh, the presence of God would never leave him. It says the Holy Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. How often do we want that presence? We feel like, how dare we have that presence? That's the God we have. He wants us in that moment. In verse 12, David picks up and says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach the transgressors your ways, and the sinners will return to you. There's joy in salvation, but whose salvation? Mine? No, it's God who saves. It's God who brings salvation. Salvation is both freedom from the penalty and power of sin, and God saves in this way, and it brings joy. Joy is not just happiness, but it's an entire way of being. It's a posture. In the joy, there's not sadness, but it's worship. If you look at Jesus on the cross, he dies a horrendous life, and he raises again. We don't read that out of sadness, saying, how dare that happen to our God, but we rejoice, saying, thank you, God. Henry Nouwen talks about how there's people who are wounded healers, people who have sinned or been hurt in their life, and they've dealt with it in a way that they can communicate it to others. And in that storytelling, there's healing, and other people's lives can be transformed as well. I experience this with my youth quite a bit. I talk about anxiety or depression. I can connect to most of them in some way or another. And there's not me saying, look, I can save you, but saying, I know where you're coming from, and we can both experience healing together. David thus far moves from identifying and confessing his sin towards prayer of confession, asking for renewal, for restoration of joy. Now he goes back to deliverance and cleansing once again. In verse 14, it says, deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David is experiencing the guilt of the murder of Uriah and perhaps also the, the guilt of his son dying. And he's asking for deliverance, but in the same breath, almost as if he's reminding God of who he is, he says, O oh God of my salvation, 
One commentator rewrites this thought as, be true to who you are, God. Be my savior. Deliver me. I need you. And this is the meat of the psalm. David sings of God's righteousness. His lips open with praise. Even through sin, David worships. Even in sin, become humble, broken, but not shameful, and instead confess and worship who God is. Jewish tradition says that in order to approach God, you must bring some sort of sacrifice, an offering. David recognizes, coming up here, that this offering is not really what God wants, but he cares about the heart of who we are. One commentator writes it this way, All that David can offer the Lord in worship then is his shattered spirit, his broken heart, that is the very center of his being, himself. Sin has broken him. Judgment has broken him. But even more than this, when we discover God's mercy and his incredible love for us in sin, here is our final breaking. In our sin, we come to a place where our heart sobs, and there's nothing that we can do to fix it. And sometimes this takes a long time to figure out. But in the moment that we get to the place of despair, God right wraps his arms around us. And this is where David ends his psalm on a personal level. He tried to cover his sin. He tried to fix it. So too, how often as Christians do we try to fix our sin before we can go to God? But what we really need to do is be like David, be raw, worship God. Now, verses in 18, are an addition, 18 and 19 are an additional conclusion to the psalm, but on a more corporate level. Now, remember, David is king, and part of his role is to represent God among the people, and so he's praying for his people. He says, do good to Zion on your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem so that you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David concludes that a broken leader means a broken people, and so therefore a restored leader would be a restored people. And so this is what he's praying for. But didn't he just discount the whole sacrificial system? Didn't he just say, I don't need sacrifices, he needs hearts? The problem wasn't the sacrificial system, but it was the person who was giving the sacrifice. Once people are renewed with God, then we can approach God, or then we can offer him sacrifices, and then we can have communion with him. The psalm has been a prayer of David's on many levels for renewal. But there's no renewal apart from pain. Pain comes from a variety of sources. It could be a moral crisis. It could be finances. It could be when you get a new diagnosis of a new illness and your life breaks. It could be from a broken relationship. Perhaps life catches up to you, but not only catches up, it passes you, and you're left wondering, where is there meaning in life? How am I going to be remembered? Renewal in these circumstances can vary, but the deepest renewal is ultimately spiritual. And since God is holy, and since he's given us a conscience, and since we can't be renewed from dealing with our sin without him, 
try as we might, we can try to remove our sin, make sure to rationalize it, make some sort of argument saying why my sin is okay or why this wasn't really a sin. Then the moment of truth when we realize there's nothing we can do about it, that's when God comes to us. How do we know what to do in this moment? Psalm 51 shows a lot of truth for, for how to deal with this for the person who's willing to pray this prayer from their own broken heart. Even in sin, become humble, not shameful. So confess and worship. What if I were to tell you there's a way you can do this that would move you from your sin into a place of joy? Now, it's not an exact formula, but based on this psalm, I think there's some answers. Step one is to recognize your sin. Name it. Maybe someone needs to point it out in your life, and maybe you need to accept that word from them and not push them away from you. Perhaps you need to do this in community. A growth group could be a great place for this. But recognize your sin. Step two is to run, but not run away from God. Run to God. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, this is the hardest part. We tend to think that sin or to repent is to turn and move a different direction. But it's to run instead of following the gut reaction to hide. Now my dog, when he gets in trouble, he runs underneath the kitchen table. He knows we can't get him very easily down there. Anywhere else in the house we can catch him, but he runs and he tries to get away. It's part of being alive is to hide from our shame. Step three is to pray. Pray for renewal. But pray out of a broken and humble heart. Sometimes we get told as kids that we need to pray and say I'm sorry, but the heart's not really there. It's good practice for the kid, but as adults, we need to get to a point where that's really who we are. Step four is to worship. God's the one who brings salvation, not us. God is God and we are not. What does that mean to recognize that? What if in your sin problem, whatever that might be, even amidst the sin, you immediately start to worship? Say, God, you are holy. I am not. And, and go through that process. Stop trying to fix it yourself. You, you are not God. Let God be God and let him be the great healer. That's who he says he is. Now, we're going to begin to move towards the celebration of communion. We believe that communion is a remembrance of Jesus' sacrificial death. The bread will break, and has to do with Christ's body also breaking. And there's a cup of juice, and the cup reminds us of Jesus' shed blood. The focus of communion is to remember all that God has done. It can be a time of worship, a time of thanksgiving, renewal. We tend to be a very forgetful people. And in the Old Testament, God knew this, and he would tell his people to set up all these memorials whenever he shows up so that we can remember what he has done. In the New Testament, we see Jesus teaching us to remember as well, but through this way. The Apostle Paul instructs that before we get, we're to go to the cup, that we are to examine our lives first and then eat the bread and 
take the cup. We do it here at Bergen Park Church, what we call open communion, which means you don't need to be a member to participate. You don't need permission from any of us. But it's if your God is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is Savior of your life, please participate. Please join us in this. Those people who are serving communion, if you can come forward and and take the elements and go to your stations. The way we're going to do this is through worship. And there'll be some songs being sang up front. And there should be plenty of time for you to spend your a little moment with God. Reflect on your life. Reflect on how you stand with God. If you prefer not to get up, just raise your hand. There's someone in the back who will be happy to come and serve it to you. The Gospel of Mark records one of the versions of this communion. And of course, Jesus talking to his disciples. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And he broke it in pieces and gave the disciples, saying, take this, for this is my body. As he took the cup of wine and gave thanks for it, gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant for my God and his people. It is poured out for the sacrifice of many. Let's partake in this now as you feel led. <laughs> 